You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We have said over and over again that the book of Micah, by God's grace, sets before God's people the unrivaled glory of God, his incomparable greatness, his transcendent holiness. Now, how does Micah do this? How does the prophet set before God's people God's unrivaled splendor? Well, remember the first night we talked about the structure of the book. Micah does this with three rounds that each follow the same pattern. The pattern of God showing up in his splendor and calling God's people to hear an announcement of God's coming judgment against their transgression. And then, beyond that announcement to hear of an announcement of God's glorious salvation for his believing remnant, the true Israel, those among God's people who truly have yielded their hearts to God in faith. That's the pattern. Now, last night and this morning, we looked at the beginning bit and the ending bits of round one. And we're going to do the same thing right now in round three. We're going to look at Micah 6, 1 through 8, the beginning bit, And then the ending bit, Micah 7, 7 through 20. So we're going to look at the beginning and conclusion of round three. Then tomorrow morning, we're going to hone in on the final three verses of the book. You all are like, spare us. We've had so much judgment. Don't worry. Tomorrow morning, we're honing in on salvation. (laughs) In these three verses at the end, Micah brings to glorious culmination, glorious culmination, his whole prophecy. And he, in those final three verses, is exulting, delighting in his incomparable God. Do you remember what the name Micah means? Who is like the Lord? And how does he conclude his whole prophecy? Who is a God like you, pardoning our transgressions, and so on and so forth. So as we see many glorious attributes of God that show his transcendent holiness, there's one attribute that most peculiarly displays his unrivaled splendor. And what is that attribute? His commitment to show mercy. It surpasses them all. And that is how Micah concludes his book. This basic truth that the judge has given pardon to us and that that he's manifesting his greatness through his mercy... This is a basic truth that those of us who have grown up in the church, we've heard all our lives, right? We've articulated it. We sing it. We say it to one another. We know that what it means to be a Christian is for God to have forgiven us our sins in Christ. And yet, so often, it doesn't really shape us, does it? The reality that we are pardoned. We make much of God's pardon in the songs that we sing, in the liturgies that we speak, but actually in the way that we lead our lives, we can sometimes make very little of the reality of God's pardon of us. In this way, we are just like Micah's audience, his original audience. This group, Micah's original audience, they also had their origins in God's mercy to forgive. Do you remember what preceded the Exodus? The Passover. (laughs) Do you remember that before God led their ancestors up out of Egypt and took them across that Red Sea and guided them through the wilderness and brought them into the Holy Land, 
Do you remember what he did in Egypt? He had them all daub some blood on their door so that he would pass over them and not pour his wrath on them. The Passover precedes the Exodus. God must show mercy and pardon before he ushers in his full deliverance. Now, God's people in Micah's day, they had benefited from God's original foundational decision to pass over their transgressions. They had benefited from God's glorious gifts. What did they do with that benefit? What did they do with the gifts of God's grace? How did they use them? Well, they made much of God's pardon in the songs that they sang, and they made much of God's pardon in the liturgies that they spoke, but they made very little of God's pardon in the way that they lived their lives. They haven't yielded their hearts to their shepherd king. They haven't submitted to him. And they haven't let his grace shape them from the inside out, shape the way that they think, shape the way that they feel, the way that they handle thoughts that come into their mind, the the way they process things, the way they relate to one another, the way they handle their money. They haven't let God's pardon shape them. That's because they want the benefits that God gives, but they don't want God. They want the gifts but not the giver. Micah exposes their self-centeredness in Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. In Micah 6, verses 1 through 8, this is probably a familiar passage to many of us, the Lord summons all creation. Remember how Micah 1 began? Here the Lord is summoning all creation to hear the indictment against his people, his case against them. He's going to charge them of breaking his covenant. And this, this functions a bit like a summary statement, a, a summary indictment of his people. We'll see in Micah 6, 1 through 8, that really a lot of these themes he's been developing all along throughout his book, and then here they crystallize. Here's the main message of these first eight verses in chapter 6. We, rebellious covenant, covenant breakers need God's pardon. We rebellious covenant breakers need God's pardon. So let's listen carefully. Micah writes, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now the people say in response, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? 
the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now the prophet responds, He has told you, O man, or O human being, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. We each have transgressed God's ways and rebelled against his commands. And that's why we covenant breakers need God's pardon. This passage depicts the Lord, the mighty judge, the judge of the whole cosmos, the whole created order. It depicts the Lord entering into a lawsuit, a covenant lawsuit with his people. He's initiating a legal case. This is actually a a particular genre in the Hebrew scriptures, the covenant lawsuit genre. Here, the Lord is entering into a covenant lawsuit. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord summons his witnesses. Who are his witnesses? (laughs) The most stable, enduring fixtures of the whole created order, the mountains and the hills. (laughs) These have been around for centuries. They've been there for generations of God's people. And they will hear the indictment of the Lord against his people. Okay, so the Lord summons his people, verses 1 and 2. Now what does he do? Verses three, verse 3, he lays out his case. This is the indictment in verse 3. Verse 3, the people are treating God as if he were an enemy. They're treating him as if God had done something wrong to them. As if there were injustice on his part. As if he were so demanding and so wearisome. Perhaps they find his commandments burdensome. But in verses 4 and 5, God supplants their lie with the truth. God isn't wearying them. No. All throughout their history, from generation to generation, God has been performing mighty acts of salvation on their behalf. Look at verse 4. He's their captain and redeemer. When they were slaves in Egypt, who let them out? The Lord. He paid their ransom and took them as his own special treasured possession. His inheritance. Let that blow your mind. He is their inheritance and they are his inheritance. He provided everything they needed including those leaders, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, those leaders who guided them. So God is providing what they need personally and powerfully. Now look at verse 5. He's the source of their every blessing. Do you remember this story of Balak and Balaam? When Balak hired Balaam to come against God's people and pronounce effective curses on them, do you remember what the Lord did? (laughs) He just totally usurped the plan Turn the curse into blessing so that actually through Balak's strategy to curse God's people, it produced increased blessing for God's people. Now, while God was busy working out his plan to thwart Balak's plans and bring, turn the curse into blessing, what were the people doing? Oh, in Shittim, they were breaking the covenant with him. <laughs> they were engaging in idolatry. And then God, what does he do? How does he respond? Well, in Gilgal, he renews the covenant. 
So that's why when Micah's saying from Shittim to Gilgal, from the point when you violated the covenant and broke it while I was in the process of working for your good, all the way to when I, I renewed the covenant, totally by my grace, not because you deserved it, but because I love you, because you're mine, because you're my treasured possession. Now, why does God do all of this? Deborah made, this men- made mention last night in Ephesians, the so that. Look at the passage. That you may know. That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. That's his objective. Sisters, when, when God has, as we look throughout redemptive history, throughout the, the history of God's salvation acts, we know, don't we, that God's not acting in a hidden corner. He's not doing his work in secret. No, on the very platform of human history, he is proving to you with incontrovertible evidence that he loves you, that he's for you, that you can trust him, that all things will work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. He's proving it to you that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. He's demonstrated his love for you. Our sovereign king operates in exclamation points, not question marks. So why is it that in verses 6 and 7 we find a bunch of questions from God's people? Why is it that we encounter a series of questions? They're responding to the Lord's declaration of his chronic public display of his love. You know, public display of affection. That's what I'm talking about. Publicly displaying his affection, his saving acts throughout history. And how do they respond? we just don't know what you want. Has God been unclear with them? Has he been ambiguous in laying out what he desires from them? These questions in verses 6 and 7, they expose the dishonesty of the people. Because just as God has demonstrated his saving acts, on the platform of human history, so he has made clear what he desires of his people in giving his law to Moses on Mount Sinai and on the plains of Moab. They have this book. God has graciously told them how to please him. You know, it's like those of you who are married. You sometimes beat your head against the wall thinking, oh, I don't know how to please my husband. And isn't it great when he just tells you What makes him happy? God has done that. That's part of his grace to you, is that he doesn't make you guess. He tells you exactly what what pleases him. And yet here, they're responding to him with questions. They're, They're feigning ignorance. And yet the very questions that they ask expose the condition of their heart. What are these questions all about? Religious cultic performance, sacrifices in the temple. It's all about religious performance. They're treating God like a really demanding idol, you know? Okay, we hear you. You've done a lot for us. Well, so what do you want? I mean, what's it worth to you? Shall I go out to my flock and, you know, find, the, find a, a really great, pick the, the best that I've got and give it to you as a whole burnt offering? Oh, no, you're more demanding than that? Okay. Um, okay. Uh, should, I, should I go get thousands of rams and, and tens of thousands of rivers of, of oil? Are you demanding like that? 
Oh, okay, okay. Um, hey, do you want me to just go kill my firstborn um, and, and, maybe, and maybe give you the firstborn? Is that going to satisfy you? Is that going to get you off my back? This generation is very religious, extremely religious. But here's the thing. They don't want nothing to do with God. Their litany of questions in response to his accusation exposes that they don't know him at all. Killing their firstborn? Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the Lord makes perfectly plain that that is an abomination. He uses that language. An abomination. Do they not know that the Lord hates child sacrifice? Well, I'll tell you what, they would know that the Lord hates child sacrifice if they read the book. This was convicting to me. Do I invest the time and the energy to read the book, to know what it is that pleases God? Do I invest my heart in reading his book where he personally speaks to his people he puts the cookies on the lower shelf, which for me is actually more cumbersome, you know, because I'm six feet tall. So I, but for those of you who are normal, he puts the cookies on the lower shelf. He's telling us how he loves us and how he wants us to respond in a covenant relationship of mutual love. Do I read the book? We see here that, again, by the, the question that they're asking, they're not even reading the book. Or maybe the book is being read around them, but they're not taking it into their heart. Of course God doesn't want you to sacrifice your firstborn. Are you crazy? He's not that kind of God. He's not like the gods of all the other nations who do call you to sacrifice your firstborn. He's different. He's incomparable. He's utterly holy. Micah's original audience is relating to their covenant God like they're trapped in a bad marriage that they wish they weren't in. Now, I'm not married, but go with me. See if this illustration works. They're like a self-centered, inattentive husband who treats the basic expectations of a covenant relationship and marriage, he treats it as if his wife were being so demanding. You know, she's just so irrational. Now, what does that attitude expose about him? He doesn't really love his wife. <laughs> he has no desire to please her. He wants to do the bare minimum of what's required so that he can get her off his back, you know, and then go about doing what he really wants to do, hunting or fishing or, I don't know, you all tell me what your husband likes to do. Sure, if he has to take her out to dinner just so that she'll stop whining, he'll do it. But, you know, he just wants you to know he's not very happy about it because she is just so wearisome. God will have none of their feigned ignorance and he will have none of their hypocritical religiosity. In verse 8, the prophet calls their bluff. He has told you, O human being, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Since the inception of their relationship, this has been God's heart. He longs not just to take us as we are, but to transform us. You know that saying, God takes you as you are, but he doesn't leave you as you are? <laughs> He's aiming to change you from the inside out. He wants you to be shaped by his grace. He wants his covenant relationship of mutual love, that family bond that he's graciously given us, 
He wants that to shape us to change us, and then, therefore, to be expressed in the way that we live our lives. One key reason that God has redeemed us is so that we might know the ecstasy, the ecstatic freedom of leading grace-shaped lives, distinctively Christian lives. Oh, it's such a privilege. It's such an honor. It's such a joy. That's part of why he's redeemed you, so that you might know that privilege of not being tyrannized by greed or tyrannized by whatever idol claims us. No, he wants you to be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So therefore, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. No, he wants that for you. And yet, Micah's original audience, what have they done? They've perverted the grace of God and the privileges of a covenant relationship to a license to lead whatever sort of selfish ambition, self-focused life that they want. That's what they're doing with his grace. Sisters, what about us? I don't know if you're as convicted as I, but how often do I treat the Lord Jesus like a credit card? You know? Oh, he's forgiven all my sins. There's no ethical authority on me. I can now go out and lead life however I want. So often, I pervert his grace. I squander his grace. I presume on his grace. It's it's so crass. It's it's such a loss. Not Not only because it dishonors the Lord. Now, that's the main thing. But it also dishonors the Lord in the sense that I'm submitting to a yoke of slavery. I'm acting a fool. I'm acting like I'm still a slave in Egypt, but no, he has come to set me free. And the same for you. He has come to set you free, to put on display his transformative grace. You know, usually when people quote Micah 6, 8, which they do a lot. How many of you all have heard people quote Micah 6, 8? Yeah. And it's a wonderful verse. I'm not meaning to dog it by any stretch of the imagination. But so often when people quote Micah 6, 8, it's as if they don't realize it's in the context of judgment. (laughs) You know? Sometimes we quote Micah 6, 8 as a slogan to make it seem like I'm a justice kind of Christian. You know? I'm the kind of Christian that actually lives according to this. All these other Christians are just hypocrites, which ironically is hypocrisy. But we'll (laughs) we'll leave that there. But Micah 6, 8 comes in the context of judgment. It is exposing not only how we fall short, but that our feigned ignorance will not be an excuse. We know what God requires of us. Even like our sister Gunnar said, our conscience can be stirred and we try to hush it. Let's each of us be sober-minded about that. This has done its work in me this week. Believe me, I have tried to hush the conscience. But God graciously in his kindness does his work by his word in our hearts. And as we're stirred and afflicted maybe, we try to hush it, but no... We cannot feign ignorance. We, we must recognize that he tells us what he requires. Here's the reality. You and I are covenant breakers. And we stand in desperate need of God's pardon. The particular sort of pardon that I need and that you need isn't merely the sort of pardon that we receive in our minds. I'm speaking humanly here. When we first come to Christ, covering all the sins that we committed before our conversion, 
No, let's get real. You and I need God's pardon from all of our covenant breaking after we've come to Christ. We need that too. You and I, we're grace exploiters. We're grace perverters. We're covenant breakers. We need God's pardon. And sisters, thanks be to God, that's precisely the pardon that is yours in Christ Jesus. The very pardon that I need and the very pardon that you need as grace exploiters is the very pardon that God gives to those who put their faith in Jesus. Let's turn now and look. Well, actually, let me do this. I'm going to bring us to Micah 7, 7 through 20. But let me take us through the terrain of uh, how we move from 6, 9 through 7, 6. Okay? Open your Bibles and track with me. Immediately following this covenant lawsuit in Micah 6, 1 through 8, the Lord elaborates on the indictment. Remember, he gives us that indictment in verse 3. Then he elaborates on this indictment from 6, 9 to 7, 6. And we see again, especially beginning in chapter 7, the prophet is personally grieving the coming judgment. He is identified with God's people. And the fact that God is going to be bringing his judgment just wrecks the prophet Micah. He's so profoundly grieved. So Micah goes into this deep, guttural lament that, yes, we can imagine Ruth as put to music. You know, if we were put to music, it would be so poignant. And what would we call that? What's that? There's like a trendy name. Yeah, dirge, okay. I'm thinking of a trendy name. I can't get it. Because anything trendy ain't up here. I've got to rely on somebody else. So we, he's just, yeah, in this dirge. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he turns. He stops his grieving, and he turns in dramatic hope. One of the amazing things about the book of Micah is the lack of logical transitions from judgment <laughs> to salvation. That, that tension begs for a resolution. And we don't find that till we see Jesus on Calvary perfectly, fully satisfying God's demands of justice and perfectly, fully pouring out God's mercy. But here we see in verse 7, he turns and he begins to trash talk dance. He begins to exult in the coming salvation of the Lord. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this, Micah 7, 7 through 20, and then I'm going to invite you to turn to one or two people beside you and make some general observations about Micah's announcement of, of salvation. And then I'm going to call us back to the group and hear from some of you, okay? So I want us to interact with this text. It's glorious. And then tomorrow morning, we'll put a little exclamation point on it. So I'm going to read it as I do. Be paying attention so that you can share with one another what stands out to you. Micah 7, 7 through 20. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where's the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. 
a day for the building up of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, Euphrates River, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of the strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord your God. They shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. You all take just a few moments, turn to one another, and then I'll call us back and we'll process it. Would anyone like to share something that stands out to you? You know, we, if we were to imagine the prophecy of Micah being acted out on a theatrical stage, we might imagine at the opening, the living Lord comes out as cos- cosmic judge. And what does he do? Chapter 1, verse 3. He treads those mountains, you know. He's treading it all on the high places. And then we might imagine at the conclusion... He's he's entering stage left, treading on the high places. Then we might imagine at the conclusion, right before he exits stage right, he's treading our iniquities underfoot. What beautiful symmetry. What else did we notice in chapter 7, 7 through 7, 20 that we want to process together? And there's no right answer. We're just making observations. What stood out to you all? Yes. and it reminded me of Colossians uh, 2, um, 14, yeah, 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Mm -hmm. No, keep reading the next bit. Mm-hmm. He's putting them to open shame. It's the sort of just bold triumph and vindication that we see there, Paul articulating in Colossians. That's a great word. Yeah, and it's a legal setting. Do you notice the, the interesting... You know, we've seen the judge all along. The judge opens the book. The judge closes the book. Does it throw you off a little bit that the judge is the one pleading the cause here? He's the advocate. He said he was 
prosecuting attorney and defense attorney at the same time. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? And again, you're mixing metaphors, but this is astounding. This, this idea, this legal context, and as we think about our salvation in Christ in its legal terms, it blows our minds. And yeah, I think that Colossians, you know, where it's, he's trash talk walking. You know, he, he's putting the enemy to open shame, making a public spectacle of him by triumphing over him in the cross. What else stands out to you all? Yes? I was on my table, um, verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And I was thinking about like last night when you spoke, and it's heavy. Like your message, this message is heavy and it doesn't sit right. And I went to bed thinking about all this stuff, you know. <laughs> and then this morning, because it's heavy, but I know what's coming Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And I know where you're going with it. Mm-hmm. You know? and, then, and the next verse, he says, um, and he will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. But I love, like, before that, you know, I'm going to sit in an uncomfortable place and, because I have sinned against. Hmm. And if we just rush the, the good news, then we're not we're not fully feeling the weight of our sin. One thing that we've been praying before the sessions is that because, because I do think we have a tendency not just personally but also interpersonally to hush any unsettledness. We don't like it. Uh, we we want to say, oh no no no, it's okay. And and it, we have to get to Sunday morning. Jesus died, but he got up, and we're going to get up too. But, but it's important that we let our consciences be afflicted, that we let God shine the bright light of his word on us. So, so that's a good word. Maybe a couple more things you all would like to highlight. This is so rich. Yep. Um, and who is a God like you? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was thinking about, and I don't know a lot about other religions, but people who have studied and spoken, they talk a lot about how like. You know, some people believe, like, oh, well, we all worship the same God. It's just a different... And it's like, no, we do not. The God of this other thing is not like this. And the God of this other thing is not like this. Mm. This is special and different and unique and unique to us. And mm. unique to, you know, and want others to know about that, obviously. But just remembering that, like, who... There is no other, and it is so complex. And, you know, it's, that's such a good word and you remember last night that we said the only explanation for idolatry among God's people is that they've lost sight of who God is because if you see God for who he really is you ain't going to be giving your heart to nothing else right you're not going to be chasing these other ancient near eastern territorial deities that do call for the sacrifice of the firstborn who in her right mind would worship a God like that when you have this God who's dwelling in your midst at the temple, who, like you're saying, wants to relate to you personally and intimately. It's utter folly. So again and again, those of you like me who have been convicted of your own idolatry in your life, the ways that you're chasing other things apart from God, the solution is not a moralistic one. It's not to make a top ten list and to go through the action steps. The solution begins with seeing God for who he really is. That's why Micah, that's his literary strategy throughout the whole book. Maybe one more comment. I know I'm woefully. Maybe one more comment. Yes. Um, you were talking about verse 7, just the godly wisdom in that. Or, um, you know, first, you're going to look to the Lord. And second, you're going to wait for the God of, your, of our salvation. 
Yeah, it just blows our mind, doesn't it? That the living God, this mighty judge, who is so transcendently holy, have we said over and over again, he hears us. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, may God in his kindness wake us up that we see just how baffling, how astounding, how earth-shattering are these truths that Micah sets before us. Sisters, we're going to continue to dig through the end of Micah chapter 7 tomorrow morning. But let me just conclude with this. May God in his kindness change you and I increasingly from one degree of glory to the next so that we are women who make much of God's pardon in our singing and in our liturgies and also make much of God's pardon in the way that we live our lives. May we be the sort of women who not only recognize that we're in a covenant relationship with God, but who revel in it and who are characterized by that sort of slack-jawed, awestruck humility and amazement that that incomparable God is the one who has set his affection on us in Christ. May we be those sort of women. Let me pray. Father, as we have said again and again, only you can do this work among us. We ask that even as you have shown us your character through our brother, the prophet Micah, might you continue to show us your character as we go into our small groups. Might you be pleased to, as our sister stated a moment ago, to continue unsettling us, if that would be your will, or to continue binding up our hearts, if that would be your will. Whatever spirit you see fit to do in each of us personally, may you do it to the glory of the Lord Jesus. And might we corporately grow in our joy over who you are and what you've done. Your mighty acts of grace on our behalf. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.